0: This podcast has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients, and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. Please read other important information, which can be found on the link at the end of the podcast episode.
1: Greetings. Welcome to another Eye on the Market Energy podcast. This is the third in a series of four. Uh, we did the first two already, um, and this one is on electrification of home heating, specifically the issue of residential heat pumps and uh, what can be accomplished. Uh, you may not have heard much about them, but residential heat pumps are a pretty big deal these days. They they represent a very large share of how commercial buildings and homes are heated in new construction in the U.S. and Europe, and Europe has, has recommended uh, uptake in electrification of home heating as one of the ways to reduce reliance on Russian energy. So this is increasingly becoming a big deal. And um, as evidence of that, there's a bunch of places that have banned combustion of fossil fuels in new residences starting in some future year. San Francisco, San Jose, Denver, Seattle. New York City is one example. In New York City... Last December, the City Council banned gas-powered heat and stove appliances in newly constructed buildings. This ban will take effect at the end of 2023 for buildings six stories and below. And by 2027, it will apply to all new construction, uh, irrespective of size. So what's going on here and what are the risks associated with this because um, they're important to talk about? Well, the goal is to electrify residential heating, uh, presumably with the notion that the more you decarbonize the grid, you're decarbonizing home heating if it's done through electricity instead of with on-site combustion of gas, propane, or, or fuel oil. And now, a lot of you will be familiar with home heating through what's called baseboard or resistance heating. That happens to be incredibly inefficient, um, and that's not really what's being recommended here by people who are focused on it. What what people are um, focused on here is, for example, uh, an, uh, an electric heat pump that's called an air-to-air heat pump. Now, there's lots of different kinds of heat pumps, but let's just think about air-to-air heat pumps because they're the most commonly used ones. And let me first spend a couple of minutes on, on what this thing is. As strange as it may seem, there's actually heat in the air when the temperature outside is freezing. There's some heat in the air. So if you have a refrigerant that's as cold as, let's say, minus 60 degrees Fahrenheit, that flows through a coil outside your house, it can extract some of the heat that's in the air, even though the air outside is freezing, and uh, that refrigerant absorbs that heat, and it gets turned into a low temperature vapor. Um, that warmed refrigerant then gets circulated with a compressor that in- uh, increases its pressure and temperature, and then it heats the interior of your house. The important thing here is that the compressor is the main electricity using component and so all you're doing is using electricity for heat transfer uh, which is a lot less energy than resistance heating one of the ways to think about heat pumps is they have something called a coefficient of performance which is the amount of heat that you get per unit of electricity consumed and um, heat pumps can have coefficients of performance of two three as high as four Uh, in other words much greater units of heat provided per unit of electricity consumed. So that's the good news. Uh, The bad news is electricity is a lot more expensive than natural gas, for example. So even in simple terms, if I have a heat pump that has a coefficient of performance of three and a half, but electricity prices are three and a half times the cost of natural gas per unit of energy, then I'm just really breaking even. Now, it's potentially good from a climate perspective, but from a cost perspective, it's it's break even. So these heat pump uh, coefficients of performance need to be very high in order for there to be both climate benefits and for there also to be economic benefits for people to adopt them. And we have a chart in here showing that over the last three winters, as an average, residential electricity prices in the largest states ranged from two to five times higher per unit of energy than natural gas. So um, uh, this is definitely an issue that that heat pump adoption is going to run into, again, which is the incremental cost of electricity compared to um, direct combustion of fuel oil. The, The bigger issue that we have run into when thinking about widespread adoption of heat pumps is a project that we worked on with Michael Waite, who's a professor of mechanical engineering at Columbia University. And uh, the issue is what happens to peak loads if everybody uses heat pumps uh, for winter heating and gets rid of their backup thermal systems. In other words, I... Going to get rid of my natural gas system or i'm going to have new construction that has no backup thermal power the risk is on most days that would work out just fine but on very 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 cold days you could have a spike in electricity demand that overwhelms the existing grids and one of the things that that michael did on a special project that we worked with him on is to is to look at a census tract by census tract basis across the entire united states Temperature differentials and and all of the necessary data that you'd use to look at this and say, if everybody used an electric heat pump, what would happen to demand during those super, super cold winter days? And uh, as as you might imagine, you have to build out the, the efficiency and capacity of your electricity grid, not for average loads, but for peak loads. Right. You, you have to always have more capacity than the highest load on any given day uh, in terms of your transmission and distribution system. And what Michael found is that if all residences used heat pumps and had no backup thermal power, about two thirds of the census tracts in the United States would see their peak loads increase and more worrisome the average peak load increase in those affected census tracts is about 100%. So in other words, the peak loads could double in two-thirds of the census tracts in the United States if um, if they all used electric heat pumps. So again, so the challenge here is that you can decarbonize home heating using electric heat pumps, for sure. Um, most of the time, that will that will entail substantial climate benefits because of of the gradual decarbonization of the grid. But your transmission and distribution requirements could be really substantial uh, in in ways I think that policymakers may not have fully grasped yet. One of of Michael's recommendations uh, is is to allow homes to have backup thermal power systems, but that's not what a lot of the new policies in the US and, and Europe entail. The reason he recommends that, if you have backup thermal power on site for those extremely cold days and you don't rely on electricity, you can get 90 to 90% of the climate and economic benefits without any census tracts having any increases in peak load. Because for those very, very cold days, you just use those temporary backup systems instead. The challenge there is it is... Would it be economically viable for the natural gas and fuel oil and propane industry to maintain all of the infrastructure required for these backup systems if they were only being used a fraction of the time as, as remote backup? And that's the part that's unclear. I, I don't think so. I don't think that it is that economically viable for the natural gas industry to maintain all that infrastructure. Could there be some other kind of... Uh, backup power that's non-electrified on very cold days, like residential fuel cells. Well, maybe, but if that's the case, now we're talking about even more structural change and additional all-in costs for this solution. And so, um, so the the bottom line here, at first glance, when looking at these heat pumps, is they. I've I, look. I've installed them in in my home. <coughs> um, I have a few of them, and so far, so good. You. Uh, you know the payback period's pretty decent because um, uh, if you if you don't use too much electricity on very cold days, um, you'll spend a lot less over time than you used to spend on on fuel oil and, and propane for sure. Um, but the the cost of electricity in certain parts of the country is is still extremely high relative to natural gas, and um, that's going to be one of the headwinds for for uh, faster adoption. Now. To be clear, you, you, there are places in the world where there are heat pumps more broadly used without any backup thermal power in place. Um, Scandinavia is a good example, and they compete favorably with other kinds of heating systems. Um, they also use other kinds of heat pumps that extract heat from, from the ground or from groundwater. Uh, now, the issue to think about is in Scandinavia, their homes are much much more, generally, more energy efficient um, than U.S. homes, which means that they can make it through in winter on very cold days and not necessarily need the same amount of BTUs of energy to heat those homes. Um, there was a, a study that came out from um, the EU Commission, and what you can see here is that the... the They use much lower energy consumption per dwelling uh, uh, in Scandinavia than the rest of Europe. And the U.S. uses twice the energy per home as Europe and even more versus Scandinavia. So, again, just kind of like Norway and the whole electric car thing, um, sometimes Scandinavia is not necessarily the best proxy to use for what's achievable in, in larger, denser countries. And to, to get to where Norway is on heat on heat pump adoption, um, they provided subsidies to people to switch. They have uh, fossil fuel taxes that are ten times higher per metric ton for fuel oil compared to the United States. Their electricity prices are low, and they've and they've actually banned oil boilers. Um, remember, Norway has five million people. Its population density is ten percent of Europe. And more than 90% of its electricity comes from very cheap hydropower. You know, the rest of the continent in Europe and the United States as well have to deal with, with more complicated challenges. And, and that's one of the reasons why only 6% of Europe's 240 million residences have these heat pumps installed. So to to wrap up, um, th- there can be some substantial... Benefits both economically and on a cost perspective to to switch to heat pumps, particularly in new homes, given their greater energy efficiency. And you don't need to retrofit any ductwork or anything like that. Um, uh, and there may be some places where heat pumps are cheaper than natural gas. Um, but if we're thinking about long-term decarbonization, if if the transition involves heat pumps only being adopted mostly in new homes. That's going to take a long time. In the U.S. and Europe, uh, new home sales are only about 1% or less of the housing stock each year. So, you know, one of the issues we mentioned on the EV transition is the speed of the electric vehicle transition is slowed by the fact that people hold own cars for 10 to 15 years before switching. Well, guess what? Natural gas furnaces and oil burners can last 15 to 25 years Uh, and so electrification of residential heating is likely to be an even slower process than electrification uh, of transportation unless very generous subsidies are provided to promote switching so um, uh, that's uh, that's what I wanted to share with you on this on this topic of residential heating because it's become a big factor in a lot of net zero and deep decarbonization discussions. But there are there are some economic challenges here and there are also some practical challenges here in terms of the life of existing fuel systems. And then, of course, there's also what I consider to be the biggest challenge of the three, which is what to do about the really cold days and how to avoid those grid surge requirements um, that would otherwise hit a... Uh, a spindly and underinvested transmission and distribution system in the US and also in parts of Europe. So that's um that's our discussion for this week. Uh the next next week I think we're going to do the hydrogen podcast which was the longest section in the paper this year and in some ways the most interesting. Um, I also think we have uh, uh, for obvious reasons uh a market and economic discussion uh, client webcast coming up. So um, keep a lookout for an invitation to that. Thank you very much for listening. Bye.
0: Michael Semblis, Eye on the Market, offers a unique perspective on the economy, current events, markets, and investment portfolios, and is a production of JP Morgan Asset and Wealth Management. Michael Semblist is the Chairman of Market and Investment Strategy for J.P. Morgan Asset Management and is one of our most renowned and provocative speakers. For more information, please subscribe to the Eye on the Market by contacting your J.P. Morgan representative. If you'd like to hear more, please explore episodes on iTunes or on our website. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is a communication on behalf of J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments Incorporated. Views may not be suitable for all investors and are not intended as personal investment advice or as solicitation or recommendation. Outlooks and past performance are never guarantees of future results. This is not investment research. Please read other important information, which can be found at www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclaimer dash EOTM.